You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. As Christians, we believe the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 14, verse 53 to 72. Please have your Bibles open or follow along on the screen. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them and questioned Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophecy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maid servants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them since you're a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Loving Father, may the words I speak now be your words. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Soften our hearts that they might receive that word. Transform our wills that we might be doers of that word. Lose our tongues that they might proclaim that word. We ask this for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. What do you think is the single greatest sin? What's the most unforgivable sin you can think of? You might not be a follower of Jesus, so let's not use the word sin. But even for you, what's the greatest offense you could ever commit? You might think it's murder, terrorism, or genocide. And whether or not you're a Christian, I'm sure you agree that that's as bad as it gets. But would it surprise you to hear that the single greatest sin you could ever commit is blasphemy? The greatest offense in this world is claiming that Jesus isn't who he is. As we return to Mark's gospel today, we're going to see why blasphemy is so serious by looking at Jesus' trial. And in this trial, we're going to see an innocent king that's convicted of blasphemy and a guilty disciple who blasphemes his king. An innocent king and a guilty disciple. And if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, I hope that today you see that the greatest offense you could ever commit isn't murder, terrorism, or genocide, as bad as they are. No, the worst thing you could ever do is to blaspheme or reject Jesus as king. Previously in Mark 14, Jesus was betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He suffered the pain, loneliness, hurt, and abandonment of absolutely everyone. However, Jesus did not run away from the cross. He did not run away for us. And now in the cold early hours of the morning, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin to stand trial. In verse 53, we see the Sanhedrin is made up of the high priest, all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. This is like the High Court of Australia somehow combined with the General Synod of the Anglican Church. This is the highest national body in charge of Jewish affairs, all gathered to convict Jesus. Now remember, it's the early hours of the morning. These people are swift and coordinated in their plan to convict Jesus. They don't want anyone or anything to stand in their way. Everyone who needs to be there is gathered and ready to go. The scene is set, and the trial is ready to begin. Jesus is dragged before the Sanhedrin, and Peter follows him not closely, but in verse 54, at a distance. How ironic. Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends, and yet he stands at a distance. How would you feel if one of your closest friends distanced himself from you in your deepest hour of need? But Mark doesn't want us to be distracted by Peter just yet. The trial now begins, but it's not the fair trial you'd expect. No, this trial already has a predetermined outcome. In verse 55, Mark shows us 
They were looking for testimonies to put Jesus to death. Jesus is a dead man walking. Now, the Sanhedrin don't have the power to execute offenders. Otherwise, they would have already killed Jesus. You know, that power lies with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. But they do have the power to convict someone of a capital offense. That's why they need to find Jesus guilty. But Mark highlights another irony. Even in this unjust trial, they can't find him guilty of anything. Three times in verses 55 to 59, Mark shows us the inconsistencies and the total lack of evidence. Look with me at verse 55. The whole Sanhedrin were looking for a testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. Following on in verse 56, for many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. These witnesses are making serious accusations against Jesus. Accusations of sedition against the Jewish temple in verses 57 to 59. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build up another not made by hands. Wait, but didn't Jesus say that? Didn't he say in Mark chapter 13 verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Or in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. To a casual listener, these accusations sound true. Jesus did say that the temple will be destroyed and raised in three days. But notice the subtle twist of evidence against him in verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. They're making Jesus into the instigator of sedition. They're falsely accusing him of a crime punishable by death. But in verse 59, once again, these witnesses didn't agree with each other. There's a big tagline for the trial so far. It's, Jesus is innocent. In any trial, the defendant has to plead their innocence or guilt. And that's exactly what the high priest demands from Jesus in verse 60. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? However, Jesus remains silent. Why? If you were innocent, wouldn't you want to plead your innocence? Wouldn't you be so frustrated if people were spreading lies about you, slandering you, and defaming you? Wouldn't you want to just stand up and outright say, they're wrong? Perhaps the silence is deliberate on Jesus' part. Perhaps. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. 
Jesus could easily plead his innocence. There clearly wasn't enough evidence to convict him. Jesus knows that. But if he pleads his innocence and walks away free, he will not achieve his father's will. He will not die as a ransom for many. Jesus needs to be silent because Jesus needs to save. With the trowel now slipping away, the high priest takes matters into his own hands. He directly questions Jesus in verse 61. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the promised King of the Jews? Are you the God who will deliver us? The high priest is clever in crafting his interrogation because he knows by asking this question, he'll get the conviction he wants. It's like when your mom asks who stole the cookie from the cookie jar, you or your brother. Either way you answer, there's no good outcome to it. If Jesus says yes, they'll convict him of blasphemy. If he says no, he'll remain under their custody. Either way, it's a loose-loose situation. But Jesus replies, I am. Can you hear the echo of Exodus 3 in Jesus' reply? I am who I am. Jesus is directly claiming a connection to Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's saying, I am the promised Messiah who redeemed my people like Yahweh did back in Exodus. But not only does Jesus say, I am, he adds in verse 62, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Can you hear what Jesus is saying? I am the king who will be honored by God in Daniel 7. And I am the judge of Psalm 110, who will make my enemies my footstool. Jesus is declaring to be their God, their king, and their judge. The high priest tears his clothes in outrage and immediately condemns Jesus of blasphemy. In Leviticus 24, blasphemy is the act of cursing God's name. At its core, it's a rejection of who God is. And the penalty is death. There is no greater sin than blaspheming the name of God. If the words Jesus speaks are not true, he's committing the greatest sin of all. He's outright cursing and has no fear for the name of God. But blasphemy is more than just a religious sin. It's a political crime. It poses a direct threat to the Roman Empire. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, not Caesar. This is a crime worthy of death. So far in this scene, Jesus has been arrested, and in this trial, he's been charged with blasphemy. But here's the irony. What if Jesus is innocent? What if he really is who he says he is? 
What if he is the God, the king, and the judge? If Jesus is innocent, doesn't that mean that the one guilty of blasphemy isn't him, but the high priest, the Sanhedrin, and the servants? As Jesus is dragged away as an innocent king, the scene now moves from a cold court to a warm campfire where we find a guilty disciple. In verse 67, Peter is warming himself. While Jesus is being convicted, Peter is keeping himself comfortable. But not for long, because the very annoying maidservant sees him and says in the same verse, you were also with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. She marks Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. This, this May servant is like a really annoying classmate in primary school, the one who finds out that you have this thing with another girl in class. And, and this maid servant, that annoying classmate, tries to tell everyone about it. Peter is no longer just keeping warm. No, he's really starting to feel the heat. Like Jesus, he's now the target of someone who's found out his shame. What does Peter do? If he really is Jesus' disciple, wouldn't he testify for him? Wouldn't he stand with his friend and say, yes, I'm with Jesus? Quite the opposite. Peter denies Jesus not once, but three times. In verse 68, he denies Jesus and moves to the entryway, away from the court, away from Jesus. It's like the immediate reaction and denial where you try and put out the spot fire. Look, you're dating her, aren't you? No, I don't know what you're talking about. And in that moment, you're like, I have to get as far away from this as possible. In verse 69, the maidservant again catches Peter, but this time she begins telling others, this man is one of them. Back in the classroom, once again, you're like, no, I don't like this girl. More and more people are noticing and hearing this annoying classmate, and it's not looking great. Your high blood pressure is really starting to rise, your ears are getting hot, and the adrenaline is really starting to tip over. At that point, you know you're caught. Peter denies Jesus a second time. And finally, the annoying maid servant gets what she wants. Everyone is now convinced. She's got everyone's attention. In verse 70, everyone around Peter is certain that he is one of Jesus' disciples. This is the breaking point, the outburst. This is the point where you don't just deny your affections, but you express hatred for the girl you're seeing, where you start bringing her down rather than testifying your love for her. I don't like her. I hate her. She's ugly. Who would ever want to be with her? And that's what exactly Peter does. One last time in verse 71, 
he denies Jesus to the point of cursing and swearing. Peter's not just following Jesus at a distance now. No, he's altogether running away from him. Peter blasphemes Jesus. He denies his God, his king, and his judge. We might think we would never do this, but too many of us already have, haven't we? When people ask if we're a Christian, we feel that panic, that shame, and like Peter, we walk away, slide out of the conversation, or maybe some of us might even outright deny him. Immediately after Peter's third denial, a rooster crows the second time. Jesus' prophecy from verse 30 is fulfilled. Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you would deny me three times. Peter promised that he wouldn't deny Jesus even to the point of death. But he does exactly what Jesus predicted. And when he realized what he'd done, Peter broke down and wept. It's at this point the girl who loves you finds out what you just said about her. Actually, it's even worse because a moment before, you've just promised that you would never leave or reject her. And now you have. Can you see what this whole passage is trying to show us? It's showing us that blasphemy is the greatest sin. Blasphemy is the greatest sin. Why is it that so many people see crimes against humanity like murder, terrorism, and genocide as worthy of the death penalty? I wonder if it's because we see the value of human life. We believe that humans are full of dignity and value. How much more, then, is the value of divine life, of God's life? I wonder if you can begin to see why blasphemy, the rejection of Jesus as God, King, and Judge, is the greatest sin of all. It's because God is of infinitely greater worth. The matter of fact is, we're all blasphemers, aren't we? Notice Mark's emphasis of all in verse 64. They all condemned him as deserving of death. The high priest, the whole Sanhedrin, even their servants. We've all seen Jesus' disciples desert him, and here we see one of his closest friends deny him. There isn't a single person there who doesn't blaspheme God. They all reject Jesus. And so do we. We may not be murderers, terrorists, or dictators. We might even be a really nice and moral person. In fact, when it comes to how we treat humans, we're actually not that bad. But the real question isn't how we treat humans. No, it's how we treat God. All of us have rejected God, haven't we? 
in active and passive ways, in what we should and shouldn't do. When we reject Jesus as king and live as rulers of our own lives, chasing success, pleasure, and comfort. When we choose how we live our lives and no one else, especially God, can tell us how to live or what to do. All of us have mocked, raised our voice, and lifted our eyes in pride towards God. And we also fail to do what we ought to. When we follow Jesus at a distance, not testifying or bringing glory to his name. Verse 64 is true of all of us. We all condemned him as deserving of death. All of us have rejected God, and so all of us deserve to be rejected by him. All of us deserve the death penalty that Jesus bore. But here's the big irony of this passage. Jesus is the only man who never blasphemed, and yet he was convicted of blasphemy, not us. He is who he said he is. He is the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. Jesus stands alone as the faithful servant of God. His life was characterized by loving his Father and submitting to his will. There wasn't one second in which he failed to magnify God's glory, and he lived in total obedience every moment of his life. And yet, he died in a place of blasphemers like us, in a place of those who blaspheme him. The one who was blasphemed becomes the sacrifice for blasphemers. Jesus stood condemned in our place. He stood silent as he was accused so that we might not need to stand in judgment. In that moment, Jesus wasn't really being judged by the Sanhedrin. No, ultimately, he was being judged by God. Death is the consequence of blaspheming and rejecting God. But Jesus willingly took the penalty of a blasphemy on himself. He took our judgment, and death. Because only he lived a life we could have never lived. Only he could die the death that we should have. The innocent king died for the guilty disciple so that you and I can escape our guilt and enjoy his innocence. This really leaves us with one question. Will we testify or deny Jesus? Will we bless or blaspheme him? Will we proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is our God, King, and Judge? Or will we, like the Sanhedrin and even Peter Peter himself, deny, reject, and blaspheme him? If you're not a Christian, I hope you see that all of us have blasphemed God in one way or another. We all have rejected him, and we all deserve death. But Jesus, the innocent king, died in the place of guilty disciples like us. 
And only through him can we be innocent before the creator and judge of this world. Brothers and sisters, we need to be a church that does the opposite of blaspheming God. We need to testify to the goodness and glory of Jesus. Fearing and honoring him not just in our words, but also in our hearts and our actions. We mustn't be like Peter and follow him at a distance. No, we must stand with him in this world as we tell everyone what he has done for us. It's not an easy task. In fact, we'll all probably suffer. Because just like many mock Jesus, so many will mock us too. But when the world puts you on trial, remember that there is a greater judge. For though the world might declare us guilty, our God has declared us innocent. As we conclude, I want you to hear these words from Daniel 7 once again. And suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. There is and will be a day when Jesus will finally return, this time as king and judge. A day where he will judge those who now presume to judge him. A day when the tables will turn and will be the ones that will be on trial before Jesus. And when that day comes, will either be vindicated as innocent or judged as guilty. That day will either be a day of celebration or a day of condemnation. It all depends on how you answer this question. Will you testify or deny Jesus? Will you bless or blaspheme him? I wonder, which will you do? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for Jesus, our innocent King. Thank you that he died for us so that we can escape our guilt and enjoy his innocence. Father, we are sorry for the times when we still blaspheme you, when we reject Jesus and live like rulers of our own life, when we fail to testify and magnify Jesus as King. Forgive us and continue to sanctify our hearts. May every word that comes out of our mouth and every action we do bring glory to Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.